Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counselor faculty at Kent State and host of Circular Firing Squad. We've got six members, six questions, and six answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the serious to the silly. Let's do a firing squad roll call. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and I am a doctoral candidate at Kent State University. I'm also a practicing counselor at a private practice and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. Hi, I'm Elliot Ingersoll, and I'm a professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and co-host of Apply Topically. Hi, I'm Eric Perry. I am a clinical faculty member at Southern New Hampshire University in the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program. I'm Gina Martin, and I'm also a uh, counselor education and supervision doctoral candidate. I'm also a, an adjunct instructor at Northwestern University and co-host of Supervision Time. Jen Cook, assistant professor at Marquette University and counselor education and counseling psychology. Uh, we've got a, a great set of questions that range from, you know, topics around counseling and academia to just some interesting, silly questions that are curiosities. And when I hear from people, they, they seem to like both. So we're going to keep with that. Steph, you're up with the first question. First question, what is the most difficult class you have taught and or taken and why? Elliot. Definitely has to be psychopharmacology for me um, because A, we have to teach content and then we have to coach the students to think critically about the taught content because there's so much misinformation and disinformation around drugs uh, in this country. And the, the stuff updates weekly. There's uh, every week there's new breakthroughs and uh, new efforts at misinformation and uh, disinformation. How about you, Eric? Uh, for me, I thought about the taken part first and uh, was immediately drawn back to my stats three course in my <laughs> doctoral program. I actually pulled out my notes to see if I could understand anything, and, and some of it's still there. Um, but the part of the question in, in terms of teaching, um, I, I really, my first course, right? It was a theories course. Um, should have been really easy. It's, it's stuff that I know inside and out and have a really keen interest in. Um, but the first time I taught it, uh, I, I was teaching on ground and sweat through. I had to do a costume change in the middle of the course because I sweat through a shirt um, just out of sheer nervousness. Right. <laughs> um, but it, it was also just like this really kind of uh, quintessential experience for me. It solidified my wanting to do this and, and to be a part of counselor education, but it was definitely the most difficult experience I've ever had. But what about you, Gina? So for me, I think stats has to be up there. That definitely resonated with me as well. Um, in terms of courses I've taught, I also agree that the first class was brutal, um, but it's also my favorite class. So I'm going to pivot a little bit and go with Methods 2, which is one that is a series course that we teach at Northwestern. And um, that one has been a big challenge because I feel like there's so many different skills that come up and so many different ways to interpret skills and kind of like Elliot, you mentioned, you know, there's the, the content, but there's also like the clinical practice side of it too. 
um, which I think makes that course particularly unique and which is why I love to teach it. But uh, the first few times teaching it, definitely a challenge. We'll go to you, Jen. I'd have to say in terms of taking courses, um, any class that I took prior to learning how to study. So that would have been my sophomore year. Um, when I finally, of college, when I finally learned how to study because a friend sat down and taught it to me. Um, I came out of my first year of college with a stellar 2.4 grade point average. And, you know, everything was hard because I didn't know how to study for anything. And I didn't know that I didn't know how to study because, you know, I went to a high school that, you know, you didn't really have to do much and you graduated. So I would say that anything prior to learning how to study and probably anything that I was taught that I couldn't be good at, like this idea that like girls aren't good at math, you know, so, you know, algebra, stats, all of those kinds of series until I finally had an instructor who said, you know, you can do this. Um, And that really, that changed my reality. In terms of teaching, I would say there's always a little bit of a challenge in every class. Um, However, probably the most challenging was when I came to Marquette in my very first semester and took on someone else's syllabus for teaching group counseling and didn't choose the book and used another instructor's syllabus. I will never do that again ever in my entire life because it was like reading from a script because it wasn't me. Um, So that was probably the biggest lesson I ever learned. And that was probably my lowest score on a course evaluation ever um, because it wasn't mine. It was somebody else's. So Marty. You know, I couldn't think of the taught part of that, this question, most difficult course I've ever taught, but I immediately was drawn to the taken part of it. And for me, taken was organic chemistry in five weeks three hours a day in lectures, Monday through Friday. We used Morrison and Boyd, which is, you say that to anybody who's a biology major, you say Morrison and Boyd, and watch them shake because it's a 1,300-page book with 36 chapters, all done in five weeks. We had computer-based training as part of the course. And by computer-based training, I mean green dot screens that when you wanted to hit the correct answer, you touch the screen and it interrupted the laser beams that were shooting across the screen to notate that you were touching the particular areas. It was really kind of a a fantastic system for back in 1977. We had three organic labs three times a week in the afternoon. It was just an immersive learning experience. It was boot camp for organic chemistry, and you had to live and breathe it for five weeks in the summer and nothing else. And I kind of liked it. I liked that level of immersion, and I was successful at it. I got an A in the class. So that was all fun and good for me, but it was the toughest course by any means that I've ever taken. Steph, back to you. I have to say that I can appreciate that orgo selection because I was, for the first year, um, an undergrad, a biology major. I wanted to go into marine biology, and I was really thankful that I got out and switched to psychology before I had to take that course. I heard just horrible things, just nightmare. They all passed, but I'm glad I didn't have that experience. But for me, 
also an undergrad, there was this course that I thought I was taking for fun. It was called, I think it was called the Old Testament as Literature. So it would be studying the Bible as a story. And I thought I understood and I was, okay, this, again, interesting, fun, elective. For some reason, it didn't click the way that the professor was talking and just wanting us to interpret this information. And I say it's the most difficult class because I'm still not sure what he wanted and I'm still not sure what they were asking of me. Um, I think it was just two different wavelengths. So I feel kind of badly that I feel like I might have missed an opportunity there, but I, I worked hard. I met with him. It just, it wasn't the way I was thinking about it. So that was my experience. Elliot, next question. Well, uh, before I do, Eric, I totally resonate with the, uh, co- the, the shirt change at the uh, middle of the class. I got so bad, I went to my physician and I asked her, is there something you can give me? And she gave me a prescription antiperspirant and she said, this will work. Oh, it worked. But then the underarm area was burning for like four days and I was walking around like I was waving an airplane in. I was, it was horrible. And so I just went back to sweating. Anyway, uh, my question, and this kind of draws on, we have a lineage now of uh, great, great uh, people in counselor education. And when you think of great figures in our counseling field, who comes to mind? Eric? Yeah, so I thought about the question a little bit. And during my graduate training, I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit. Um, I was really into, uh, you know, psychoanalytic and and just this, uh, had a fascination with Lacanian psychoanalysis for a while and object relations and um, I was really trying to conceptualize at this meta level, and uh, I was with a really, really, really intelligent group of graduate students, and um, just couldn't find where things fit for me for a while. Uh, and then I started to read Ellis a little bit, and for me, Albert Ellis was um, maybe not the clinical utility I, I draw upon all the time, but brought me to the realization that what I do needs to fit well. Um, which is really different in, in terms of thinking about solutions and thinking about ways in which you're good at your job. Um, so I'm going to pick a method that's not the best method for the task necessarily, but that fits me better, um, that's more genuine, that, that resonates. And um, so I have, I have actually a little Albert Ellis figure here that nobody can see. Um, but it, it was a gift for me because it was my inspiration to kind of get to a point where I was selecting theory more based upon what I felt fit me, what was going to fit my clients, what was going to present as genuine. So when I think about theorists and I think about things that, you know, in this vein, I, I think about really making that connection to what resonates to you. You know, so more drawn uh, to those, you know, solution-focused therapists. Insu Kimberg uh, is by far one of my favorites. And, you know, Albert Ellis for being that inspiration, even though I don't use it as a clinical utility quite so much. But, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I land with that. What about you, Marty? This question brings up all sorts of ideas uh, of larger, big names in the counseling field for me. And I had to roll it back a little bit to think of those folks who were mentors for me when I was just starting in the counselor education field. 
Richard Hayes, who was at uh, the University of Georgia at the time, and he invited me to do some work with him on a grant that he had, and he was real influential in my sort of freeing me up in my thinking of of being uh, taking on leadership pieces and and being engaged in the profession. Mike Altacruz, uh, another mentor of mine, was introduced to him, and uh, you know he followed me and supported me in my career throughout. Joe Rotter, the chair of my dissertation, and probably. Uh, another long-lasting relationship I need to mention is John McFadden, who uh, is still at the University of South Carolina and opened up a whole idea and doors about uh, diversity and issues with diversity. If you think of the big heroes, I guess I've been lucky to meet many of them. Uh, you know, they were still alive, folks like Albert Ellis and uh, William Glasser. And I had opportunities to go to workshops with them, but I spent four days with Carl Whitaker in a small workshop, and I have come to appreciate his work so much in terms of the weight of you families and the the eye of the um, counselor being engaged in families. The idea of also parallel play, that you're not really engaged in families, but you're playing alongside them as a way towards uh, healing. So Carl Whitaker really was one of the larger big names in the field that influenced me, but I had all these great mentors. What about you, Gina? Yeah, I thought a lot about this question too, and I think it's a good one. Um, I think back to some of the foundational ones to object relations, attachment theory. I think back to like Winnicott. Um, I think back to Melanie Klein. Um, <clears throat> I also think psychodynamically, obviously Freud. Um, and I think of like more contemporary people like Nancy McWilliams, who have had an influence on who I am as a therapist and who I am as a counselor educator as well. That being said, um, I, I really love the work of Oliver Sacks, and I know he's not a counselor educator. He's a psychiatrist and a very medical model doctor. Um, but that being said, that's influenced a lot of my work, which is why I've kind of transitioned into making my research career more about integrating both neuroscience and counseling. Because I think there's a really, really big opportunity there to combine those two fields. So as, as that's kind of developed, I've found that I love um, Bremner, I love Gabor Mate, um, some of these more trauma psychiatrists who are more in that neuroscience world. Um, they've been a little bit more accessible than the pure neuroscientists <laughs> as I'm writing my dissertation. Um, but that being said, I think it's all, it's all good to kind of combine those things and, and get that uh, integrated perspective. Jen? Well, you know, I kind of decided to go in the direction of, you know, sort of more the personal impact of people I've known sort of flesh and blood. Um, because, sure, you know, I'd say, you know, Norma Day Vines and Harry Aponte and folks, in, you know, different folks in different genres had a lot of impact on me in terms of their writing, but these are not people with whom I'm connected. And you know, I, I had a really good core group of master's level instructors when I was in my master's program. Um, you know, I'm indebted to Carlos Ippolito Delgado for bringing me into research and Trudy Polson, both University of Colorado, Denver, 
um, Marsha Wiggins and Diana Strada, who supervised me through my practicum and internship and taught me family therapy skills. Um, you know, but I would say in terms of my, um, in terms of my development as a counselor, and she'd probably be surprised to hear this because um, she fought me tooth and nail because I'm so damn stubborn. Um, but Diana Strada had such a huge impact on me as my, as my supervisor because she would call me on my crap up one side and down the other. Um, and to watch her model the skills, she's the real deal. Um, and she really allowed me to use my, my intuition and my um, self of the person in the room of the counselor to be able to dig into what people were experiencing. So, you know, I could tell you about all these greats that I've read and been inspired by, but really it's these real life folks. I mean, I had an amazing doctoral advisor um, in Gerard Lawson and amazing in terms of bringing me into service in the profession. And I'd even put Marty in that category because he was, he was one of the first people who took me under his wing in the service area when I, when I first came in as a doctoral student. So I would say that all of these folks have had a really big impact on me because they're the they're the real life connection. They're the real deal. Um, the writers are, the researchers are, sure. But like, these are the people that, you know, I got to share time and space with. Steph. I have always said that Victor Frankel is my counseling spirit animal. Um, that's where my brain goes to first. I am very moved by his life, by his journey. I relate to it on different levels. Being Jewish myself too, I think it resonates a little bit more um, just differently as far as understand, not understanding the Holocaust, but just learning about it my entire life. It's not something like a new thing that I was learning about. I'm like, yep, okay, all that stuff happened. Um, when other people have read it sometimes, um, I'm talking about Man's Search for Meaning, by the way, um, that they say, oh, I mean, I knew about the Holocaust, but I didn't know that. So on that level, but then also what he brings and what he's gotten from it and how he has made that meaning from his experiences and tragic experiences and how you can change your perspective about a situation, even if you cannot change that situation and you still have that power and control for yourself at that autonomy. Um, and there's a piece of that that just can never be taken unless you let it. Elliot. Uh, well, for me, you know, I thought about um, my master's level mentors, Jan Gil Waggle and Chris Favor, who's a dear friend. Um, and there's so many people, but the one who really stood out was Judy Moranti. And she was so encouraging. I, I'm not a quick, smart type of person. And all of these people, and she especially was encouraging to just stay with my ideas, keep writing, keep revising, keep editing. She and her husband hosted my partner and I for a visiting professorship in New Orleans. On um, yeah, to me, she's you know, if if I was nominating people for sainthood, Judy would be like right at the top of the list. But her kindness, her incredible breadth and depth of knowledge, uh, the, the, the those just blew me away. And I am so grateful to have, uh, you know, had that chance to have her in my life. I think the next question goes to Eric. Yes. Um, so I'm going to change things up a little bit. 
What childish, juvenile, or silly thing still amazes you as an adult? So that's my question. Uh, and this one goes to Marty first. The Three Stooges. <laughs> um, hands down. I was not permitted to watch them as a child because, you know, it was going to, I was going to start poking people in the eyes, apparently, if I did that. There were all of these things that I was discouraged from, from watching them. So I was not uh, exposed to them as a child. I have an older brother. Maybe he was exposed to them and then started doing some behaviors. Maybe he poked me in the eyes. I don't remember it. But um, I can watch them now. And I am just fascinated by the choreography, it, how all of the different scenes play out. I also like the fact that I think it's very much like life. You start out being a milkman and you wind up being a bank robber. You know, in 20 minutes, everything changes. The reality changes in that period of time. But that's the childish thing that if they come on, I'll put them on one of my screens and let them run in the background while I'm doing work. Gina. For me, it's actually monarch caterpillars. So when I was a child, I never did this experiment. And my husband did. He talks about it all the time, how his second grade classroom, they, you know, grew the little caterpillars all the way up to monarch butterflies. And I I had never done it. My, my mom, I, you know, I'm at my parents' house this weekend and my mom still says that it makes her squeamish to see the little bugs rolling around and all this stuff. So we never did that. And this year I thought I would do that with my daughter since she's at that age where all this stuff is really fascinating and she's had a really good time. But I think I've been having a better time watching these little caterpillars grow. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by how they move and how they know what to do and how they go through each of the different stages and they molt. And there's all these things that I had no idea about before a few weeks ago. And now I am like a monarch caterpillar enthusiast. We're thinking about making a Wayfair station in our backyard to have these monarchs every year. Um, it's just been a really fascinating time. And we have a nice little prairie right by our house where we can get the milkweed. Um, and this weekend, since I'm gone, we, I drove 20 minutes to find milkweed for these caterpillars because <laughs> they don't have any here in the northern suburbs of Chicago. So it's been, uh, it's been an adventure and my, my partner's making fun of me for it and my parents are making fun of me for it. But it's been, a, it's been a great experience that I am completely fascinated by. So I'll report back when they, when they grow into full butterflies. But <laughs> Jen? Well, I, I had to narrow it down to two things. And I don't know if this is because, you know, I'm still, you know, four years old in my mind, or maybe because I didn't have children to take them through these stages in life. But um, swings, you know, the ones at the park that you go on, I still believe that if you swung hard enough and high enough that you could flip over the bar. Um, I, I'm still thinking about being able to do that. And strangely, I had a dream about actually doing that the other night, which is just kind of odd that this question came up, but it still fascinates me, the idea that I might be able to do that. The second thing that I narrowed down to was, you know, when you're driving in the car and you put your hand out the window when you're going like 60 miles an hour and how cool it feels to like change your hand in different directions, you know, and how the air passes over. I mean, it's basic physics, right? But for some reason, I don't know, it just, it takes me back to being 
in the back seat of my parents' car, rolling around with no seatbelt, um, and just sticking that hand out the window and the way that it felt. Steph? I love being silly, and I love silly things. Um, one silly thing is this, oh my goodness, it's a song off from Sesame Street, and it's the Count is singing this song, and I don't know if, it's not one of the, it's not one of the hits, all right? It's like, it's a B-side, but it's the Batty Bat, and it's, he does the song, and he's singing, and he's, and then, it, and it cuts to the chorus, which is Batty, 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 and, and it has these little sparkly bats that are like super cute, and two, three, count, Batty, 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 so I have revisited that in the last few weeks, and um, I, I still laugh and smile every time it pops in my head. Elliot. Well, uh, for me, it's uh, Kleenex tissue boxes. You pull one out and another one just pops up. And I'm like, who thought that up? That is so beyond me. And even when you get, if you get a deep box, even when you get to the middle, if you, you know, uh, it, it'll fade out. But then if you give a good tug, it comes back. And I'm just like, that's such a nice thing. And I have no clue how it's done. Eric. That is awesome. I, so I, I got inspired by the question I was talking about how I got through graduate school with the huge amounts of support. But my daughter was really young. She was maybe, I don't know, two or three. And we had these blocks. They're these huge foam blocks that you would stack and build things with and then just absolutely destroy. And she would crack up. And I would crack up because I was, I was in it as much as she was. And then we'd do it again. And there's no pressure. There's no screwing it up. Because if you knock it over, it's still funny. And it's still entertaining. There's no, there's no lose in this situation at all, right? Um, so now my son is getting to the point where he's into Legos. And we're sitting at the table and we're building stuff today because it was raining and terrible. And I mean, what else are you going to do? Um, and we're like having this really in-depth conversation about what we want things to look like and it's the wrong color, but it doesn't matter. It's just ours. And, you know, I, I get to revisit all these things that are really entertaining and actually have an excuse. You know, I can say, I have played with Legos, but my son is here and, you know, he gets up from the table and leaves and I'm there about an hour and a half later, still building something, um, (laughs) when dinner time rolls around. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's a fun question. I enjoyed that one. Uh, I think our next question goes to Marty. Yeah, on a more serious level, this question is uh, a question that I, I kind of take seriously, but I'm curious what other members of the firing squad think about it. How do you feel about sharing your classroom syllabi with others or being asked to share your syllabus with others? Gina? So this question, I read it a few times and I, I don't think I have a problem with it. And I'm saying that tentatively because maybe that's the stage of my career that I'm at. Um, but that being said, I feel like why reinvent the wheel? And going back to, Jen, what you said before, when you reused someone else's syllabus and it came across not so great because it wasn't genuine, I feel like if I share mine and that helps someone develop their own class in a way that's unique to them and genuine for them, then that's a great thing. Um, and I feel like if they use mine word for word, it's just not going to be very effective. (laughs) So that's my thought. I'm okay with it. 
How about you, Jen? Yeah, I feel what you're saying. And I, I also do feel some sort of way about when some rando person that I don't even know writes me and is like, hey, so we met this one time at a conference like five years ago, and I know that you teach intro to counseling. So I was wondering, can I have your syllabus? I don't know. that I, I do feel some sort of way about that. Um, I don't want to re- people to reinvent the wheel, but like, I also, it feels a little intellectual property and it all, I'm not sure that like plucked out of context that it really makes sense, you know, that we would need to have a conversation about it and how this fits with this and this fits with that. It's not that my syllabus doesn't, it doesn't flow or that you can't tell from the syllabus, but in terms of like how I teach and how I present material, it makes sense for me. Um, I don't know. I do feel some sort of way about this. Apparently I'm not a, I'm not a hoarder when it comes to stuff and I want to share, but don't be rando person that I've only met like for 30 seconds and couldn't pick you out of a lineup. And you're trying to take all my stuff for me that I've worked really hard on. So I don't know. Well, I guess I do know. I'm saying, I don't know when I know stuff. <laughs> How do you really feel Jen? Um, Great question. <laughs> so I was thinking this was an, an it depends answer. Um, I think is, the two previous answers are kind of alluding to if it if it's somebody I know, if it's someone I've worked with, if it's someone that's from my cohort, and if I taught a class, and hey, because I also feel like I know them well enough to know they're not going to just take it and copy it fully. They're going to maybe just examine it, see if it can inspire them in certain ways, or maybe just give them a different perspective. Please, like that's I think we can all share like that if if we could be guaranteed that that's how our you know, our work would be used. Um, I think it comes down to like, like you said, that rando, it's, they're just going to take it and they're not talking to you about it. They're not saying what went into this. They don't want to discuss it with you. They just want to take it and try, say, this is how you teach a class. And that doesn't work very well. You can't get into the mindset to know how somebody planned and thoroughly, you know, intentionally placed things into that syllabus unless you did it yourself. So for purposes of sharing information and in uh, you know, creativity, I am completely in favor. And if you're just trying to have someone else's work and have them do it for you, then it's a no-go. Elliot. I'm, I'm right there with you, uh, Steph, because it, it depends on the relationship and the course. So like a lot of psychopharmacology courses are taught Often by like uh, registered nurses, they do pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, but they don't talk about socioeconomic variables. They don't talk about uh, the government's cozy relationship with the industry. And if I just handed that syllabus off to someone I didn't know, I'd be like, I don't know that they would be able to actually use it. And I would feel like it requires a dialogue but like we have, uh, we, we have an intern from Kent State now, a wonderful intern, and, and we've had several. And, you know, I'm very happy to share with them. But again, we have a relationship. And I also, I very much encourage them to personalize it. This is how you start. These are the KCREP standards that the course covers. But outside of that, you uh, might have your own ideas and then they bring it back to me with their ideas and I see that they've kind of made it their own and that's much more um, rewarding. Eric? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say that there's 
agreement from me in that it, there's some uncomfortable thing that goes with sharing it and that relationship surely helps. And I think in some ways, I find that my approach to pedagogy can be different from maybe even peers who would request it. And, you know, because then I get the questions, well, why would you do it this way or in this order? And, you know, some of it's because it's the way I process things or I found to be helpful in my approach with students. So I I know it might not fit. And it always comes with a disclaimer, right? Like this is not going to fit you. It, It probably just fits me. And, you know, make sure you, you can use whatever you want in there. Um, I, I have more, more than the syllabus, I have more of an attachment to my content that I create, um, you know, just in terms of, of lectures and materials and those types of things, because I use a lot of humor and, you know, more so toward the middle to the end of the course when students know me and they know my weirdness and they know the dry humor and, and they come to expect those types of things. But even with the syllabus, I think you know, some of that comes from this, this understanding that pedagogically we're going to operate differently, each of us and how we approach a course and based on our experiences that it, it might not be as helpful as someone thinks to really share that. Um, so that's what comes to mind for me. Marty? Eric, I agree with you about the content part. That's for me harder to share. And if I build a syllabus, it's got a lot of content that's offline or, uh, you know, available for students that way. And so the syllabus doesn't make much sense to somebody else without that content. Um, This question comes because I I see so many requests for syllabi come across our listserv. And there is a sense of desperation in the way the person's asking for it. And I get the sense those questions come from people who have just been assigned a course that they've never taught and have no idea how to teach. So that bothers me. First of all, there are two questions from that. One, why are you given a course that you have no idea how to teach and you don't have any idea what content goes into it? And the second question I have is, what did you learn or not learn in your doc program about curricular development? because you should be able to have the skill set to put this together without grabbing other templates from other people to do it. So it's a real common practice. I really consider the syllabi the craft of our work. It's the one thing that they can't replace. Well, it's one of the things they can't replace us with. So why are we giving it away? So I'll share them with colleagues in my department, particularly if they're teaching similar courses or going to teach something that I've taught. And that gives them some ideas. And doc students who've co-taught with me. So if a doc student comes back three or four years and have co-taught a course with me, I'll share all that with them and even share content with them um, as part of that. But it's sort of a right that they have had to earn in the process. So I have that personal relationship with them. So yeah, it's always been a, something that's, that I've um, kind of struggled with and uh, was curious to get the squad's ideas about it. Gina, I think you have the next question. I do. So this goes back to a little bit, um, I just want to briefly mention, so Oliver Sacks was one of my influential people. I actually have a dog named Oliver. Uh, after Oliver Sacks. So <laughs> with that being said, the next question is, if your pet could answer one question, what would you ask them? We'll start with Jen. What would stop you from peeing outside the box? Very simple. 
stuff? It was hard to be pigeonholed into one question. My overarching question is, are you happy here? Um, and, and maybe a sub question is, what could we do to improve your experience? Elliot. Uh, we're very close to adopting a dog, but we don't have a pet. However, my partner, she bought a garbage can that has a motion-activated lid. And every time I walk to the laundry room, the lid goes up, and I feel like I'm supposed to salute or something. But then I anthropomorphize things. And what I would, I would, I would say, should I skirt closer to the drawers so that you don't have to go up and down again? Is that bothersome? Or do you feel fulfilled simply enacting, you know, that particular motion? That... It's not quite a pet, but it's as close as I've got right now. Uh, Eric. I'm so glad my son was off so I didn't snort on the mic. Um, <laughs> I, listen, we, I'm going to have to uh, claim this as a homestead on my taxes if we get any more animals in this house. Uh, we have two dogs, two cats. Right now we have um, some hermit crabs. Uh, generally have fish. Um, I just don't at the moment. Um, but usually, like, uh, the only question I would have is, is just what the hell? Um, I mean, th these animals are so weird. They're so weird. I mean, the things that cats do, and um, I have one down here, Pete. He's roaming around somewhere. Generally, nothing he does makes any sense to me. You know, he's just rolling around looking at me. I come over to pet him, and he runs off. Right. Or he comes up and lays on my lap and I look at him and I pet him and that's cool. Right. But like none of it makes any sense. I don't get the nonverbals from him that I would get like from the dogs or whatever. Like that seems to make sense. So just just what the hell. Right. Just give me some <laughs> give me some monicum of, of nonverbals to work with and I'd be OK. The cats just confuse me. Uh, what about you, Marty? Well, I have a two year old sable german shepherd purebred and they tell me it's a smart breed my wife insists that the dog is very smart but i really want to ask the dog since you're so smart how come you bark at every leaf that drops from our tree in our backyard particularly when we're well protected with a deck door that you can look out of and not be threatened by the leaf or the squirrels or the birds or the groundhog or anything that moves through our backyard. The wind blows, the dog will bark. So I, I want to know why. I really want to know what's going on inside her head when the nonstop barking happens. Gina, it's back to you for your response. Yes, I... So I have a dog, McDuff, the other dog. So I have two dogs. One is Oliver and the other is McDuff. And he stayed with my parents uh, and my sister for about a week. And uh, he actually, so my sister, she's different than I am. And she's very high fashion. She's always into all of these very fancy shoes and clothes and things like this. And so I leave my shoes out by McDuff all the time. And he's never eaten any of them. But my sister had this one pair of Chanel shoes that she absolutely loved. They were her all-time favorite. 
and uh, McDuff actually ate all of the Chanel part of the shoe and left the bottom. And so I just also, similar to Eric's, I just want to know why, <laughs> why that shoe, why the most expensive shoe? Um, and just what, you know, what about those shoes really egged him on? And with that, I think we'll, we'll pass it off to Jen with our next question. Yes. So I'm going to take us down the supervision road. I, I noticed that we haven't really talked much about supervision in our firing squad. So I am bringing you the question of what is one of your favorite or most used supervision techniques? And I know that, you know, we use different things at different times, depending on if they're early in their process, if it's skills class versus live supervision versus internship. So, you know, you can pick because, you know, you might not have a favorite that spans all of them. So what is it, what's one of your favorites? We'll start with Steph. One of my favorites is a technique that it can be really helpful in supervision, but also in life, and that is reflection. Um, being asked to reflect on what you saw yourself doing, perhaps, or to ask the supervisee what they were, you know, what they thought about the interaction that they might have had with the client. Also, reflection on what was going on inside of the supervisee at the time or inside yourself. So giving people an opportunity to think and to really process and to put together the pieces of what it was like for them and then what happened and what was observable um, and what that experience may have been like for the client based on what you saw once you were out of that moment yourself. I think those can be really powerful, really beneficial, and great for growth and development. Elliot? Well, I think when a student's ready for it, I, I love uh, psychodramatic role play and then role reversal. And again, it, it's developmental, but when a student can play with me in those supervision sessions, those are the things that I just love to engage in because it's like what I hear so many times the students will say, oh, that just kind of came out. And I didn't think about it, but it came out and hmm, that's, that's worth uh, thinking about. So that's one of mine. Eric? Yeah, and I think a lot of these approaches, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it that way, Elliot, is, is completely developmental. I still really like the discrimination model in thinking about supervision, um, but I like to flip it a little bit back to the student and have them fulfill some of those roles, right? Instead of me acting in that supervision capacity or that, that um, educational or instructor capacity, I, I, you know, I'll ask them to take those roles um, and, and kind of talk through this themselves. Right. And, and I'll kind of sit in the seat and ask the questions that I think might be on their mind or, you know, try and parse through some of that. Uh, I think switching through those roles helps them understand the supervision process, where I'm coming from, what they can get from it, um, the areas they can go to, because a lot of times supervision is so foreign. It doesn't fit how you're supervised in other positions and other jobs. You know, you're used to this kind of oversight type thing. Um, and it can feel strange to talk in supervision about how you're emotionally affected or impacted or why you made a particular decision. Um, and sometimes it being okay to go with that emotion or something that you felt or were, were pulling from your client, right? Um, 
this isn't a manualized process and supervision looks very different. So I think it gives them an idea of what they can expect through the process to kind of sit in that seat themselves and move through those roles. So that's, that's what I like to use particularly early on. What about you, Marty? My favorite should be used more, Interpersonal Process Recall by Norm Kagan. I, don't, I learned about it a long time ago. I don't understand why we don't use it more often. IPR, for those who don't know about it, is client and counselor do a session together. After the session, they sit and watch a video of their counseling session. And anytime during the video playback, either can stop to tape and ask questions about what just happened. Uh, what was the internal processing going on for the person at that moment? And, and I think it's just brilliant. And I wrote a fan letter to Kagan's widow, actually. I was looking for more stuff on IPR and found a website and sent an email in and got a lovely, and I was telling her about a doc student who was using IPR for their dissertation and got this lovely email back from Kagan's widow saying, oh, Norm would be so happy to know that his model still lives on and people are using it. Well, with many of us working in university counseling centers, I just don't understand why we're not using IPR more. Gina? Yeah, I definitely agree. IPR is incredible, and that's one of my favorite as well. Um, And the reason that it's one of my favorite is because it works with my philosophy of supervision, and that's self-reflective practice. So I come, you know, from Northwestern, and they come from a very self-reflective practitioner model. So we actually do something called RPS where we do a lot of self-reflection throughout the course of supervision. And that's something that has always stuck with me uh, from my training because I think it helps to know yourself, to know your stuff, because if you don't, it's going to come up in blind spots. Um, So that has been something that has really stuck with me and one of my favorite techniques and tools, so to speak, in supervision. Another one, so this is one that my supervisor always did with me that at first I absolutely hated it. And by the end of my time with him, I absolutely loved it and found that there was a method to his madness with this. And that's when I was confronted with an issue in therapy or, you know, in supervision or in whatever context we ran into it. He would always ask me, what are three different ways that you could have done that? And at first I was like, I don't know, that's why I'm here. <laughs> and uh, after a while, he, it really made sense and it made more um, meaning to my interventions. And I had to have that intentionality behind it. So, Jen? Really, really great stuff, folks. And when Marty said IPR, I was like, yes, somebody's going for IPR because that is my jam. Um, I love IPR. Um, it allows me to kind of, go beneath what's happening with the supervisee, which I would say is probably one of my strengths as a supervisor. Um, I also really like reflecting teamwork. Um, when that's a possibility, I don't do that now because we don't have a counsel- we don't have a counseling center where I am. Um, however, that is one of my favorite things to do is to be on a reflecting team. But I also really like strength-based processes. So being able to, especially when they're first learning their skills, so in the early skills class, for example, um, being able to stop them and have the group who's with them to brainstorm, to help them move forward when they just stare at each other because they don't know what to do next. 
Um, but then also to help them to say like, okay, everybody, a quick round. What is something that you saw Gina doing well as counselor? Um, to be able to draw out those strengths in the midst of a stop that feels very anxiety producing for a new counselor. But also being able to say, okay, you've got these great suggestions and you know what you're doing well right now. So which one are you going to pick? And you have the ability to do it and moving forward. So um, I, I love thinking about supervision. I love doing supervision. I think that's where I'd like to spend more time in the future, especially live supervision. It's one of my absolute favorite things to do. Looks like we're moving now into our final shot. So over to Marty for final shot. Yeah, final shot question is, do your friends or relatives listen to this podcast? Steph? No, they do not. Elliot? Um, they, I, most of them do at least once because I say we engage in cutting-edge dialogue about human sexuality, effective dieting, and... Um, what films are going to be coming out next year? Eric. I would say maybe. Uh, I sent it to somebody the other day who I consider a good friend and colleague, uh, and he responded and said, uh, I listened to it. It was great. You remember when you said the thing about what happened at the place? Where the, he had no idea. Um, uh, he has it. I'm sure he'll listen to it. He's very kind. Um, so maybe is what I'm going with right now. Gina. My husband does, and my parents probably would if they could figure out how to download a podcast. <laughs> Jen. Uh, friend colleagues listen, some of them, and they love to text me their answers in the middle of it and whether or not they agreed or disagreed. But relatives, they still don't know that I'm not a psychologist. So that would be a no. Marty. My daughter does when she can get to it. Um, so I hear about uh, her appreciation for all of uh, you characters in that. Uh, my son says he will, but hasn't. My sister and brother-in-law have uh, listened to it, but they're, they're noobs to podcasting. So they're still getting used to the, the platform and how to download the latest one. I have a few doc students in my program that have heard it and actually commented on when I met with them for the first time last week, which was pretty cool. However, my wife, Aileen, has not listened to the show. When I press her on it, she says she's waiting for me to die so she can listen to it and have memories of me when I'm gone. So Aileen, if you're listening, I must be dead. Let's review what we learned today. Steph, batty, 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 bat. If Elliot gets a cold, uh, he can be fascinated with Kleenex boxes for hours. Eric just wants to know, what the hell? Uh, Gina's got a thing for bugs that uh, metamorphize. And if you see an arm waving out an open car window, it's probably Jen. Thanks to the squad, Steph, Elliot, Eric, Gina, and Jen. Look for these characters on their podcasts at thepodtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of the Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> <laughs>